0: Chaos is an indicator that changes required.
1: Self-control is strength. Right thought is mastery.
0: Calmness is power. Peace be still. Patience is the calm acceptance that things can happen in a different order than the one you have in mind. Better to fight for something than live for nothing. Those who inspire, lead.
1: Desmond Jinman is a Haitian proverb that means beyond every mountain, there's another mountain.
0: We're gonna ask you this question all day long. Why are you here? The more powerful language we speak, the less power we leak. My name is Luke Kaya We are a brotherhood of men committed to show up. This is the Fathers of the Future podcast. Show up! Don't quit! Do the work! Lead with love! Trust the process! Welcome to the Fathers of the Future podcast, season four. My name is Coach Luke Kayyem, and as I've hit record, start, and stop over and over for the introduction on this fourth season, I stopped and text my son, who's about to play in a high school football game here in Scottsdale, Arizona. And I'll share that with you as I believe this is the best intro that I could possibly give new you new day new game new plays new players new challenges new opportunities new playmaking abilities i love you now be the damn dog of that team on both sides of the football and so there are some things in life that a script will not work for as i share this open dialogue this platform with you if you're a new listener that's what we do And if you're a return guest, we thank you for coming back and listening to this show that truly is committed to inspiring men to lead, to become champions of their own life story, to be the hero in as many opportunities as they have each day to either play that role... Or choose to default to being the villain or the victim. And so this movement is truly about empowering, inspiring, impacting, and educating men to become better, better husbands, better fathers, better leaders, better human beings. Season four, Fathers of the Future podcast, experiences 76, 77, and 78 are all part of our first three-part series called The Trilogy. Each trilogy will have a dedicated theme, an idea, a concept, or a genre that all three of the men that we sit down with will have some type of training, experience, or possibly even a hidden message inside of. This first trilogy, I welcome my guests, Wes Edwards, Brad Larson, and Jeff Strange. Not only are these faith-based men, they're part of a brotherhood, and ultimately, they share the same core values with the men that I choose to call friends in my life. It's been a while, and before we get going here, I just wanted to welcome you to the podcast. This is your first time here. We're about to go deep. We're about to get live. We're about to go raw and discuss life, discuss fatherhood, discuss the journey for a lot of us in between faith, spirituality, religion, belief, and the void. And so if you are returning, listener, good to know that you are still there, that the Fathers of the Future movement is strong and that it is growing. We've taken a season to uh, remaster the purpose and the intention of this podcast, of this message, of this mission. And I am pleased to be here with one of my friends. One of my clients, one of the fathers of the future, a spiritual gangster, my man Wes Edwards. Welcome to the show, brother. Thanks for having me, man. Good, good to be here. Yeah. So we, we've this is probably the only run it back we've done where we've actually <laughs> recorded an episode, sat on it for a few days, a week went by, summer went by, and then we said, hey, let's do it again. Yeah. Let's come with a little bit more firepower, a little more energy, a little more intensity. Yeah, a little bit more. And so you're the man that <laughs> that we chose to have sit here in the dojo in HQ in Scottsdale, Arizona, and and go deep, man. And so we'll get after it right away. For me, I'm yep. I'm very open and vulnerable about my journey into spirituality, and uh, I've even written some information, uh, uh, kind of a blog and a message a few years back that said, "Hey, I lost my religion," mm-hmm. and in that process. I found my faith, I found my spirit, I found my God, I found my voice, which then led me to a church, which was where I was able to find you and Mm -hmm. another large group of men, of brothers, to have a church family. And so it's a progression. It's an evolution. For so many of us, especially us men, we just stop. We stop Mm -hmm. practicing. We stop... uh, Uh, praying we stop believing we stop going to church we stop even caring and so i'm one of those guys who believes in the ability to not stop but start stop stopping Mm -hmm. right regain restart this practice this journey this evolution into a connection and a relationship with a higher power Now, yours is a little bit different. You were born into your faith. You were born into your practice. You were born into your your position, your career, and what you do. So so just give us an up-to-date of West Edwards as it relates to what you're doing now, what you do, and how you got in this seat and this role, and ultimately how that faith has not only secured and strengthened your relationship with your wife but you know allowed you to adopt three beautiful children Mm -hmm. and so i'm excited for for the listeners but i'm also excited for myself to really to hear this story from ground zero so my brother west man the mic is yours there's a lot of questions in there so so i might have to (laughs) hold on i need to take some notes (laughs) write some down
1: uh yeah my parents are pastors and so i i grew up in the church what's interesting though is probably about 2005 2006 you know, I was questioned pretty hard, and I was questioning pretty hard because I'm also a little bit of a skeptic as well. I'm um, trying to see the the glasses half empty, not necessarily half full. Like what's what's real, what's not. At the same time too, I started to like from a personal standpoint, started to just read philosophy and read Christian philosophy and start to trying to understand why I was the way that I was. So when you're born into a Christian home, well you're just expected to be a Christian and you go to church. When I was a kid, you went Sunday, Sunday night, Wednesday night, yeah, may have some dinners in between. You also might have some uh Church, extra church services during the week, and so it, was, it. I don't want to say it was forced down my throat because my parents are, are pretty awesome. At the same time, I was immersed in church and immersed in uh, what the Christian community at the time would have been. So for me, it was just kind of a no-brainer. Of course I'm a Christian. I'm around a bunch of Christians, and when you get older, your parents' faith is no longer valuable. When you get older, your parents' belief system doesn't just work for me. Or doesn't work for you, for any of us. It's got to actually become a reality for you. So for me, like when I was 17 years old, I uh, was forced to go to uh, camp and by force. I mean, my parents just made me come because you know their parents. But when I was 17, we went to a place in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, and it was a service. And I found myself surrendering to God. I'm I'm kind of brushing over a a, a pretty broad stroke of events that took place. But in that, I found not only did did I. believe in jesus and i believe in god but i also found other guys that i could look up to and and a mutual friend of ours brad larson i met him when i was 17 years old when he was 19 and he's been a constant in my life which you've got a chance to be around him a little bit and you can understand why because he's just he's he's one of those guys he's just an amazing guy and he's just been there but at 17 years old my faith journey really became my own and then in 2006 ish 2005 had some good non-believing friends, if you will, some good skeptic friends, some atheists, all those good stuff. And I I appreciate the conversation because I I realized that I am not the center of the world and other people have different thoughts. And so they challenged me with some hard questions. And so I accepted those questions and realized that I couldn't answer some of them. And what was interesting in that time when I was being challenged by my own faith or with my own faith, it led me to just start digging and I started digging hard and I started looking at out, things outside of my own faith. Like, wait a second, that guy's life is going well, but he's not a Christian. Because I had this thought process that if someone wasn't a Christian, then that means their life wasn't going well. And that's kind of what I grew up in. And then when you actually step away and look at other men or other people that you admire who are not believers, their life is going well. And you're like, wait a second, they don't have God though. We have a mutual organization that, that we've been a part of. And I went to uh, an event there and I watched a bunch of men, quote unquote, surrender with no faith. In the room admitting to affairs all kinds of stuff drugs not talking to kids for years and then they're making decisions to actually do the thing that they wish they would have done years ago and they're committing to it no no faith in the room i had to contend with that because i grew up thinking that christian good everything else trash bad their lives are horrible if they don't believe in jesus it's just not true in fact I would actually say the opposite. When you start believing in Jesus and who He says He is, your life actually probably becomes a little worse because you're get, you're going to find rejection, you're going to find persecution, and if you hop over on the pond across the pond, people are getting killed for saying they believe in Jesus. So it's it completely changed my thought process once I started digging philosophy, C.S. Lewis, John Lennox. Uh, and some other guys that I appreciate who are not only philosophers, but they're Christian philosophers. And every argument that I could come against my own faith, there was a counter argument that was just as viable to talk about the existence of Jesus historically and spiritually and what that was for me. And I found myself becoming more of a believer in Jesus through that whole entire journey. And that's a long journey, but even to this day, I love I love reading John Lennox. I love reading C.S. Lewis. I love these guys because they're freaking savages, man. They're like philosophical Christian savages who could argue with the greatest minds on the planet. And it's interesting, guys like, you know, your Christopher Hitchens or your Dawkins, guys that are like the highest level of atheistic philosophy that you can think of and watch them go against a guy like John Lennox in some sort of conversation or debate. And you realize like, wait a second, man, John Lennox is is wiping the floor. He's going hard in the paint. And Dawkins, who's supposed to be this high level, can't even hang with this, you know, cheesy Christian guy. So I look at guys like that because he's not cheesy. He's savage. And he's, you know, he's an Oxford professor of mathematics. I know we're going off a little bit of a tangent. At the same time, those guys strengthen my faith and helped me. help me. And then having guys like, like Brad or like other men in my life who not only do I look up to, who are my peers, but locked arms with me when I've gone through hell and back, when I've almost lost my marriage. Who was there? Brad and Noel, you know, they were there. They were right there next to us. You know, and then on the flip side of, of, of our faith, when we started sending teams, and I'm skipping over a bunch of stuff, but an organization we were part of, were sending teams to Syria during the refugee crisis. When you look across and you say, who are all the people who are handing out water? Who are all the people who are kneeling and praying? Who are the people who are helping this this Muslim community? It's all Christians. There was no atheist group. There was no Hindu group. There was no—and I'm not belittling those religions. At the same time, when you look at the heartbeat of people who trust in Jesus, there's a resounding heart cry of believers, and it's full-on service when it's the most difficult, when it's hard, when it's hot— when you don't wanna be there. I've gone to Somaliland where, up to, towards Somaliland in Ethiopia, where you're you're seeing one nurse in a region that is trying to help and she's worn out, she's in her 60s. Why do you keep doing this? Why do you keep doing this? It's because this is what Jesus would do. He he would go to the hardest places. So I know it's a, like a, painting a bunch of broad strokes on my faith, but yeah, my faith is everything. It's, it's, it's my motivation for everything.
0: And so what would you say to somebody who has lost their faith Okay. And, and again, I love to bring in the term religion as something that is man made mm-hmm. versus something like a term like spirituality, which is, again, you have to be a believer of something, but mm-hmm. not made by man, right? So, this person, this, this man, right? Uh, myself 10 years ago, what would you say to this man? Not necessarily to get them to automatically believe in being saved, but to begin Mm -hmm. a process of faith, right? Because we have to be able to teach that for people who are completely lost and who can't listen to you about a Bible or a building, but need something to believe in. What would you say to that man?
1: I think I would invite him to work out (laughs) on a Wednesday morning. I mean, honestly, I, I don't, I'll say this. I think for the longest time, the way I grew up is our job was to convert everybody. And that's not my job. If I really believe what I believe, my job isn't to convert anybody. My job is to live a life that is exemplary of the one that I call master, Jesus. And I think for someone who has lost or has lost their faith, a part of me wants to just ask, who hurt you? What, what's, where's the pain at? Here's what's crazy, man. People who are jumping to atheism, who've been Christians or a part of some sort of faith, we're seeing a lot of those guys jump to atheism because it didn't pan out with whatever. And we're seeing a bunch of atheists, which is what's crazy, and people who say they haven't had faith are now surrendering to this guy Jesus that they've been fighting against for all their life and we're we're watching these people who are jumping from faith to no faith, which actually is faith by the way, or a a version of faith because you if if you're not going to trust in a deity, you still have to believe that, you know, something the size of a pin exploded and created universes, which is a little bit of a stretch. But most of the time and most of the stories, not always and not always the case, but most of the time those people were hurt and they've seen something behind closed doors. Like a lot of ministers that you see, I mean, they literally, you can go on YouTube and watch them preach a message at their church. And you're like, bro, that was fire who are now atheists. And when you start to dig a little bit, you realize there was an affair. There was some sort of craziness. There's pain from you know, not having a father or something, there's, there's something that's happening. And so because God, quote unquote, didn't fix whatever it is that they are most
0: hurt from, hurt from, right.
1: they're like, well, God must not exist. Jesus isn't who he says he is. And oh my gosh. And then if you read enough people, you'll validate what you want to validate. And so uh, we've, we've just seen that. And most of the time, by and large, I mean, there's a big guy who wrote one of the most popular Christian books in the 90s called Kiss Dating Goodbye, talking about just dating Jesus, so to speak, who's now an atheist- But when you listen to a story, even listen to him on his podcast, he's equating his lack of faith to men who were uh, integrous. He's equating his lack of faith to people who hurt him. And you hear it, you can hear it in his voice. And I just wanna, I really just wanna give him a hug and invite him to a Wednesday workout. (laughs) Because I mean, once you get around other men and you realize that that actually believing God or even in believing in Jesus isn't as much of a stretch as we think it is. And I don't have to actually lay down my intellect or my philosophical ways of thinking to believe in a person who is Jesus, you can watch how the merging of intellect and faith become one. And it's really a beautiful thing. Yeah. So to go a real roundabout way of answering your question, I think I would just, just want to hang out. I don't think I would even say anything about faith. And in your moments of questioning, like, bro, what do you, what do you got? Like, what's your question? What's the hardest question you can think of? Let's just talk about it. I, I, don't, I don't think our job has ever been to convert anybody, even though... That's contrary to popular belief in in the Christian faith. You
0: know, I don't know if I ever told you, but I I tried to be an atheist, but they don't have any songs. (laughs) (laughs) I heard that joke a couple of weeks ago, used it a couple of times. Let's go back to that conversion piece, because yes, you're right. That's probably the biggest fear is when you get around people who are too intense with their messaging or their mission, Mm -hmm. uh, it feels forced. It, it feels very uncomfortable mm-hmm. and people feel like, oh, well, I can't hang around them or that group because they're gonna try to convert me. And I might've even had that wall, that defense mechanism up for a, a very, percent, man. very long time. And so let me quickly share you know, my story up to this point to get us in the same room where you and I have spent a lot of time together, uh, both personally and professionally in understanding that uh, my explanation is quite simple. And this is how I, I, I tend to live life in all areas, health, medicine, relationships, you know, sleep, rest, recovery, training, spirituality, meditation, is when the door is closed, you can't go in. Mm-hmm. And so I choose to live a life where the door is always open. Yeah. Now, does that mean I want to go down a door of going back instead of forward? Do I wanna to start to you know think things that I used to think because I don't have a definition for them? Absolutely not, but I know if the door is open. For me, it was, I lost my religion. I began to practice spirituality. I began to mm-hmm. be open. I began to read, reading books on Christianity, on Buddhism, on being conscious, yeah. on, on, on information that exists all while opening the door. That spiritual connection with myself, Allowed me to tap into meditation, allowed me to open a door into gratitude, which led me to prayer, prayer to my God, which led me to going through open doors with men like you who have done nothing but be positive male role models in and around my life. Mm -hmm. And for a guy who could not trust men for the majority of my life. It, it's been very refreshing because that then has led me back into a church. But to have a church family for the very first time, even yeah. stronger to have a brotherhood of men mm-hmm. who you know, like, and trust, who are all just working towards becoming better. Yeah. And what's what's sad as I say that out loud is like, you know, I was, I was the cool kid in high school who knew guys who came from a very strong faith-based. And it was like, no, we were too cool for that. And so now, fast forward, right, 25 years after high school or 30 years in, in my mid-40s now.
1: Are we that old, man?
0: Oh, dude. <laughs> we won't we won't go down there. But most of our listeners, right, are are in their, you know, early 30s, 40s. Yeah. In in understanding that life is this pr- massive progression. And so I'm I'm very proud of my journey to this place because it has enriched my life. It has strengthened my relationship with my family. It has helped me get through very, very hard, often times of scarcity, mm-hmm. is to know that man, I'm not doing this alone. You know, one of my greatest revelations, and I'll use that word uh, here in in this room with you, Wes. But one of my greatest revelations was in a Sunday service with you, and the the pastor's message was that Father God has always been there and will always be there for you as your father. And so, you know, I'm a 40 year old crybaby in this message thinking, man, I've never <laughs> met my dad, but God has always been with me and he's always been my father and he always will be. And man, you know, that's that's an awakening message at, at any age, right? And so that's my journey. I share it. I'm open about it. I don't fear, uh, you know, one of the things that you said about, you know, pr- prosecution of, of being a Jesus fan, you know, nowadays you get prosecuted for everything. Mm-hmm. And so you can't fear what other people think about you. What you have to believe in is is who you are and what's best for you in your life. And I know a relationship with and a relationship without God, my life is better. And so maybe that's not for everybody out there, but that's my take on spirituality. Your take, again, on how you got here is much different. You've never been the uh, Ned Flanders of um, you know, uh, Christianity or faith, you've always been very authentic in that. And I think that's why it does feel so natural, right? Explain to us about that, about just opening the door for other people, inviting them to a fight club. And as that relates to what you guys are doing differently.
1: Yeah, I mean, I just we just do what we like. Like I like uh, not only human, human beings, You know, when it comes to even the skeptics, like just inviting them in the process, like I remember sitting next to a guy at work 15 years ago, who is now just one of my, one of my dear friends here in the Valley, you know, and he, I don't know how he knew that I was a Christian, but that, that guy leans from, from his he leans around just like if it was a sitcom and he like leans over, you know, so I could see his head. And he's like, I bet you think God sat you next to me so you can convert me. Right. And I just was like, what? What are you talking about? And so I, I, I realized that he was come he was gonna come, come pretty hard at me on having no faith versus this guy that he knows that has a faith in Jesus. But over the course of a few years, I mean, we started the adoption process for my oldest son and he couldn't understand why I would adopt, much less adopt so that my family becomes biracial. And I remember moving away from Phoenix for a time and we came back to visit and I said, hey, I wanna come see you. And we came and saw him. And of course, my wife, Tanya, was with us and my son, who, who is now my son, Rivaldo, at the time. He walks up to our car from where he's working and he, you know, looks at us, looks at my wife. He goes, hey, I don't believe in that Jesus stuff, but I, but I got a WWWD bracelet on. It's what would Wes do? And somehow or another, my relationship with the Lord influenced him enough to where he he no longer became mad at Christians. He, he even opened up the conversation because I wasn't afraid of his questions. Fast forward to what you're talking about, what we do with men at our church. Like that guy's welcome always. That guy's welcome to ask hard questions. He's welcome to come with his pain. He's welcome to come and say that we're, we, we're morons. He's welcome to come and say, you guys are idiots for believing in some sort of spooky, magical thing, fairy tale in the sky. He's welcome to say all that. But it's like, bro, let's do some pushups. And so like having, you know, a culture where we do things that all most men like, like, when it comes to working out, when it comes to doing hard things, when it comes to showing up when it matters most, when it comes to being the husband that you're supposed to be, when it comes to showing up for your kids, like these are the things we all want. Atheists want that too, or people who are spiritual want that. We all want that. We just don't always have a path to get there. I think, we, I think we've done a good job. With creating a framework for getting men to to doing the things that they want to do, going from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset, you know, a little Carol Dweck in there, like that whole idea of of that. I think by and large, the churches they suck at this. They have a service, you come listen to a guy lecture for an hour, and then you go and you you, you kind of figure it out. I'm not sure what to do. We don't do that
0: because come, it come back on Christmas and Easter.
1: Yeah, come back on Christmas, and he's right. <laughs> yeah. and, or when someone gets baptized. You know, and I think for the church at large, especially the North American church, because we have everything given to us, we have enough money, most of us have a home, car, place. that we, We're literally in the 1% of the most richest people in the world, even if you make $40,000 a year, you're still a part of the 1% of the people of the world that make the most money. So we have everything that we need, and so that we've gotten lazy. And so therefore we have lazy men, and because we have lazy men, we have marriages that suck, families that don't connect across the dinner table at night. We have just individual men who hate themselves. Their bodies are broken down. They're they're consuming alcohol. Going, to, let's go down the list of all the sedations that all of us do. And that we're, I'm talking about Christian men who say they have a faith and believe in a God. And I know that as a pastor, we know that as a group of of men who are part of our leadership team at our church. And it's like, well, I don't wanna suck at any of those things. So I have to find things like a crucible to wake me up and make me alive. I came and sought this out and truly believed that God connected me with you so that I could actually be awakened again because I started to gain weight. I hated where my job was because I couldn't fix things that I didn't know how to fix. Uh, I didn't have the right hires. I had to let people, all the things that were coming with this pressure of working for a church when it shouldn't be that much pressure, realizing though, that, man, I feel like God put me in this place, and I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going to quit. And if I'm not going to quit, i got to go learn how to carry more weight, which led me to Luke Kayyem, texting, you know, sending you the message that day, and you text me almost within 10 minutes, hey, Tuesday. You know, didn't even, like, ask. You're like, Tuesday, 430. I'm like, okay, well, this is already—I'm already cut from the same cloth. Boom, we're meeting. And it was, it was such a no-brainer. I, I think for our church, we have something called Fight Clubs, we use fight clubs as a way to introduce men to the framework of our pillars, which is spiritual, emotional, relational, physical, financial, and professional. These are the six pillars that we all have to steward. We can't we we can't not steward those, or we'll just let them falter. But all six of those areas, every man is responsible for. Regardless if you're being responsible, you are responsible for them. And if you if you don't actually do something for your physical body, well, it will begin to, t- to deteriorate, especially as we just were joking about being in our 40s. As a church, we have to give an opportunity for our men to win. And so many times churches make it about the guy on the platform when that sucks because the guy on the platform has an awesome message, but there's no framework. Bro, I've seen churches spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on conferences, paying that guy to come and this guy to come. We even tried to bring in a guy and that guy has no context for our body. And they don't know jack squat about Matt or about Daryl or about Ryan. And all these guys, and they don't know that that guy just came out of an affair, and they don't. And that speaker has no clue that that man is so sedated with porn because he doesn't know what to do when he goes on his business trips. And that guy's drinking alcohol and a glass of wine every night. And yes, they all profess Jesus, but they hate where they're at. That dude has no context for for any of that stuff, and can't help within their life. And that's what we do. That's that's what the American church has become. We become conferences, in services that does jack squat for me, who is overweight who isn't connected to my kids like I like I want to be. And we have to have something. We have to have a massive shift. And that doesn't necessarily mean a massive step. A massive shift can be a small step, but the massive shift has to happen. Like sending a message to Luke Kayim, which that took me literally 3.2 seconds. That's a massive shift, but it wasn't a big step. It, was, it wasn't a massive step. And then you text me. It took me two seconds to respond. It took me 15 minutes to get to your office. It took me a very minuscule amount of my income to then put into myself. Like this, that's a massive shift, but it wasn't a massive step. And I think for us, what we've done well is we've made it about the men that are coming, not about the the person that's, that's the centerpiece of the room. And really the centerpiece of the room should be Jesus, if that's who we claim to be Lord. But we make it about Luke. Like it's about Luke's journey. It's about Addison's Journey. It's about, go down the list of all the men that we get a chance to serve every week. So fight clubs, Wednesday workouts, you know, climbing at Camelback. That's, all, that's, that's a lot of your DNA and your influence on our, on our men. And they're all saying yes. Dude, I remember going to our church six months ago. I said, Brad, who's, who's a pastor, again, the guy I was just referring to a few minutes ago. I'm like, bro, I'm telling you, men will want to work out. Because I did it, did it at the place that I was at before because they were hungry for it. And I'm like, bro, they'll work out. So I invited 20 guys. And of course I've got to show up at the church. Six months ago, I got to show up at the church because I invited 20 guys. Guess who showed up? Zero dudes showed up at 5am. Zero. And I'm like, you know, I'm like, I got up early and then like, you know, I'm like trying to, I, I could have slept into, you know, but I stayed there and I created this workout called the four corners just because I was bored. And I'm like, well, I kind of had to make up something anyway for him to come and work out too. So I guess I'll just do the workout myself, which we just literally did with our boy Jeff. Put us through. He goes, "Hey, what was that workout?" And guys, uh, guys hated it. It was great. It was intentional suffering in, in its in its purest, good old Luke Kayum, uh endorsed uh, in a, in endorsement way. But like showing up, being the only guy to show up, well, great. Well, that set a tone because then it influenced the most influential guy in our church other than our pastor, which is Brad. And there's, there's more influ- influential people, but when it comes to the men, Brad's just had a lot of investment there. So then when Brad jumped on board, because we were texting that very morning, like, bro, we could do this. We can do this. Next thing you know, he invites it. I think you jumped onto it. We didn't even realize we we're going to do it every week, but it's like, hey, we're doing this right. And next thing you know, you've got last week, what was it? 35 guys are showing up. That doesn't sound like a ton, but when it was just one six months ago, and then it was four four months ago, and then when it was only 10 or 11, and half of them were coming because you invited them. You know what I mean? It's like, next thing you know, it starts to grow, and people realize, like, wait, this is a brotherhood that's being formed, and it's not about doing push-ups or doing bear crawls. It's so much more about putting our arm, arms around our brothers, like Madison, who, uh not Addison, who we just talked about before, who just had a baby boy. Congratulations, Addison. If you ever listen to this podcast, it's the day after you had your boy. Madison, here's a, here's a young man who shows up, to these workouts, and then has the audacity to pray that if we're going through something, God, I pray that you be with him today. I pray. This is a man who who lost his wife in a in a really tragic tragic way, and he's got to carry that weight, and yet he's showing up. You know, dude probably weighs one hundred and fifty pounds, one hundred sixty pounds, flipping a three hundred fifty eight pound tire, and praying that I'm going to be good, God. If they're going through something, I pray that they that they see peace in you today. And he's praying this. And I'm like, how, how does he, how does Madison have the amount of strength to be able to not only flip some tires that's twice his size, but also like pray for us when he's literally carrying the heaviest weight of, out of all of us. Like to me, that's a man that I can follow. And he's in his early 20s.
0: And how do you know that your bad day is really not that bad unless you're around other people, specifically yeah. other men sharing those stories? Yeah. Like, you know, I, I rolled up that morning, let's call it grouchy, right? I, yeah. can, I can be grouchy, especially in the morning, especially around other people, which is why I don't own you a gym. You guys like me coming to pat you on the shoulder, what's <laughs> up, Luke? Yeah. <laughs> which is why I don't own a gym anymore. But like I was grouchy one morning and in, in the warm-up phase, Brad told me, hey, that's Madison, Madison Mm -hmm. lost his wife this way. And you think about what you're going through. And again, you don't realize it in that moment. You think it's all about you. You Mm -hmm. don't realize what other people are going through. And so having that unity and that you know tribe to be able to share and sometimes you know you're going through some hard stuff but sometimes you need to hear what someone else is going yeah. through and realize that your problems are probably pretty small and so let's yeah. use this as a tie in now for what you and your wife did do you didn't just adopt one or two kids you adopted three kids from Haiti mm-hmm. and so let's let's go into that phase of your your journey and your faith and your ultimately your why which makes you a father of the future but how you got to that decision and how you got to these boys and, and who are they and how, how do they be, become Edwards now as you change the the outcome of your family lineage? Completely. My, my family tree goes from French,
1: Irish, something, whatever, American, to Haitian, African, in one generation, you know? Like I always think about my family tree had to lead up to me and then the bloodline stops with me and then gets transferred and passed the torch to these three boys who are just in, all of them are incredible. Yeah, my wife, since she was a little girl, all of her Barbie dolls, her teddy bears, all of her stuffed animals, they were all her foster kids. So when she played with these toys or these, these figurines, they were all her foster kids because she had a friend who was in foster care who was adopted and it just stuck with her for some reason. She's six years old saying, these are my foster kids. This is my teddy bear. This a my foster kid. So she's always had this thing in her that just drawn to, to kids who didn't have parents. You know, then of course we meet, we date, we get married, and that's still on our heart. But it's like, nah, we're gonna have some biological kids, and we're gonna have fun trying too. We're gonna get after it, you know, like just we're gonna we're gonna have our own kids. And so a decade goes by, we're still not even we're not even trying to have kids. I would be ready, and she wouldn't be ready. She would be ready, and I wouldn't be ready. And so we just we just didn't have kids. And you know, year twelve or year year eleven, really, we took a trip to Haiti just post post the earthquake uh, in March of ten it was just to just to go be a blessing to an organization that i had gone to 4 years earlier cuz i was seeking my own again talked about my journey in 2005 and 2006 i was just seeking a little bit and i had gone to Haiti just to get clarity and just to be a part of something that was bigger than myself and that that place left an impact cuz i didn't realize that those things existed like orphanages like that exist i knew they used to exist in the US uh, a long time ago but it just is it's interesting you just seeing kids that were either, either abandoned. And there's a whole, that's a whole nother podcast on how kids become abandoned because sometimes it's, there's a corruption side of adoption. So you have to be very careful with what you're doing. But that being said, we went to uh, the Koresh is what they call it, which is basically like a rehabilitation center for children uh, being that, you know, they're drinking dirty water, drinking water with rat poison, you know, causes them to have their heads to swell and just all kinds of disease and stuff like that. So these kids are coming to this place to become healthy. Some are abandoned, so they do get adopted. Some are reunited back with their parents after they're healthy. So we went back to this place in 2010, and when we went there, a little boy named Rivaldo was there. He was one years old. And I, I have a video on my phone from that time of watching how all of the kids who were there will go to anybody. But that little boy would not go to anybody else. He would only go to Tanya. He would, he literally would be like, if you walked to go pick him up, he would like turn his shoulder like, "Eh." you know, like a a little kid and he didn't really talk much. So he just made like "Eh," noises. You know, he's hearing English and Creole. So he couldn't make up his mind. So he just made noises, "Eh," you know, kind of a thing. And so you go to pick up Rivaldo and he would turn his head, you know, or whatever. Once he latched onto Tanya, man, it was like, he would not, he would not want to be with anybody else. He didn't want to play with anybody else. And there's a video where my wife is walking through where the kids sleep. And when she walks by that door, None of the kids get up, none of them. There's like 20 kids in this room. You can see Rivaldo though in the background because we weren't allowed to, to film the kids. They were just kind of just, you know, just taking footage uh, to remember what we were doing. You see Rivaldo in the background, you see him get up and he's, and she even says like, look, look, who's coming to me, you know, just a sweet boy. And he was in the middle of an adoption. And so he wasn't even available to adopt anyway. So that was, that was like day one and two. And I'm just there to help. I'm not there to have like my mind changed. I'm not there to say like, hey, I wanna, I wanna be a, a, a dad who adopts. But long story short, come into the week, I felt like God was moving on my heart to be like, hey, you need to be open to this. Th- this is your story. And I started to like get overwhelmed by it because now I start to think about that kid who uh, is already in an adoption process. So he's not available to adopt anyway. Born on the side of the road, was only 4.4 pounds when he came to the orphanage, literally had sugar water for the first seven, eight days of his life. No, n- completely emaciated, skinny. You know, ribs, all that stuff. You you just see this little boy when he came there, and now he's one years old, and he's back to health, and he's he's uh, he's a beautiful little boy. And by the end of the week, just being there in that environment, of course, you're gonna be you're gonna be moved. Who wouldn't be moved? And as a man of res- that is prides himself on responsibility, how could I like look at all these kids and one of them legitimately needs a home? How could I say no to that? That's that's my thought process. But I also understand too that when you're emotionally charged. You have to take some time away from that to really see if this is real. So I told Tanya, I'm like, I think God's moving on my heart here. I said, but I'm not making a decision right now. I I need some time away from this orphanage to not be around them, to be back in normal life and let my emotions die down so I can hear clearly and not make an, an emotional decision that could be detrimental to us and our relationship and to the child. And gosh, after two, three weeks, man, getting back into normal life, I just could not shake. And every time I thought about Rivaldo, I would, lose it. I would freaking lose my mind. I would be driving down the road with tears coming down my face, thinking about kids who, who don't have a home. And so I told Tanya about three or four weeks after that trip, I'm like, all right, I'm in. Like, what, what do we do? So she started the process. And of course he was being adopted. So, and you can't, you don't choose who who you adopt. They choose for you internationally. And so a uh, long story short, the people who are adopting backed out. And this whole time I kept telling Tanya too, I'm like, Hey, you got to chill out on Rivaldo. He's not available. And I don't want your heart to be broken. Again, my skeptic side of me was like, or my glass half full was like, hey, you need to be real here. He may not be available to adopt. So calm down, you know, with your, and she's like, that's our son. He's our son. We did another trip that same year, about seven or eight months later, went back, Rivaldo sees her within an hour. He's attached. He cannot, like, he will not go to anybody else. He will not play with anybody else.
0: And so how long was that process between then and when when he came to home? uh, Yeah.
1: A year and a half which is which is actually relatively short. Most adoptions like my my second adoption with our middle middle boy and, and baby boy was probably about a 4 year process. Mm. Uh, like all together. You know, but Rivaldo, like he just he did something man, he just he he charged her heart and she just knew that that was our son. She just knew he was was our son. And he knew it too. Like I have a video of me singing a song that I did uh, called Wave and Flag. It was there was a dedication to Haiti type song and so I did my own version of it and I did a, did a, my own little part where I talked about him stealing her heart and i'm okay with it i'm good with our son or that little boy capturing her heart i'm okay giving it away to him you know and and, because he did he he absolutely captured her heart Mm. Uh, and she knew that was our i mean she just knew it she knew he was our son she was determined that that was our son and And then how
0: soon before number two and number three and tell us about those
1: so angelo and frankie that was and uh,
0: they are related half brothers half brothers
1: yeah, so we were kind of dragging our feet because we knew we wanted to, you know, because our family's biracial, because obviously my son's black, he needs siblings that not only look like him, that that are probably have at least some sort of connection to where he's at. So originally we started looking at like biracial kids because they get overlooked a ton in, in the U.S. There's just a lot of biracial kids who get overlooked. And of course, well, I want the kids who are overlooked. Who doesn't, who needs a home? I got one. Like biracial kids, they need a dad. I feel like I'm a good dad. Let's get after it, you know, and- you know, it's, it's like your heart just becomes open at that point. We've already gone through this adoption process with our first son. So, of course, we want to adopt again. So, over the course of time, like my wife just felt like we're, we should adopt from Haiti again. And we were dragging our feet. No joke, man. Like we were, we were literally like, should we, shouldn't we? In one week, one of her friends that lives an hour and a half away sent us a check for $250 that said Haitian adoption in the little memo. Well, $250, that's the cost of the application fee. We went to dinner with some friends literally sitting at the at the table no 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 we were in the car and they started to talk about this money that they had from an, from a car wreck that they got from the insurance company and jeff looks looks at his wife and kind of smiles and like hey this car wreck thing we got a check for two thousand dollars and we looked at each other and we knew that it's not our money we have to give this to you we have to give this to you well guess how much the home study is two thousand dollars so in one week in the span of six days we had the application fee and the and the cost of the of the home study that you have to do to get started into the adoption process. So both Tyne and I were like, I guess God's trying to get our attention that we need to be jumping on the process of adoption. So, uh, and then she just said, it's Haiti. Like she she had she had some some experiences with her that revealed that hey, we're going back to Haiti. And so we actually signed up to do special needs, which is you know that's a lot of kids in in Haiti just ailments and so we just signed up for special needs and siblings like because no one adopts siblings and people don't really want kids with special needs and so um, when they're going through the adoption process and as much as it sounds like it's a lack of compassion kids with special needs are hard and sometimes if you don't have context or even a ability or the money it's it's hard to say yes to kids with special needs but we're in a place where we could say that and so long story short siblings Older brothers, pretty normal, but Frankie has bilateral club feet. His feet didn't fully develop, plus they were also bilateral uh, club feet, so they were kind of turned up in – to the, to the ankles were turned, the bones were were twisted or curved. But we're like, of course, they need a home. We're in.
0: And so, how long have you had all three at home now?
1: Provold has been home for eleven years, mm. and Angela, Frankie, Angela and Frankie have been home for three and a half years. And they're all they're all grade A, one hundred percent Edwards.
0: What would you say to somebody out there who is um, not able to have kids, who wants a family, who's thinking or contemplating the adoption process? Well,
1: there's a couple of things. One, I would say, naturally. You need to be on the same page with your spouse. Your husband needs to be on the same page because if, if he's kind of just doing it because you want to do it, you'll be miserable. We've watched marriages split up because of adoption, and it's because the parents weren't on the same page, nor were they even thinking the same when it even it comes to how we parent. But what's made Tanya and I says so successful in our not only our decision is because we both made it together as a team and realized that this was going to be hard and it was going to be difficult. And at the time, the racial stuff wasn't a big as big when Rivaldo came home, but... We knew some racial stuff was going to hit us because we're, we're a biracial family. We're white parents with a black child, and everyone's going to look at us as soon as we walk in the door, and it's going to have some consequences and some ramifications for it. But you've been around me long enough to go like, well, I'm just going to walk up this mountain, and I may, it may take me a long time to get to the top, but I'll I'll walk up this mountain because that little boy needed a home, and I can be that guy, not his savior. I feel like people even look at parents who adopt as saviors. We're not, we're not any kid's savior. Uh, I would say my kids save me rather than me save them. Um,
0: love that, love that.
1: But what I would say to them is they've got to be on the same page. They got to be a team. And if their marriage isn't, I just told this somebody a month ago they're they're ready to adopt teenagers and they've only been married maybe just a few a few years. And I'm like, hey, hold on, don't lose that heart. Stay stay with it. Like be foster care parents because there's a lot of kids, especially teenagers. Who they always get overlooked because there's a bunch of baggage. But you guys need to, you guys need to have some time together because that teenager is going to put you through hell. And you got to know who you are. You got to know why you're doing adoption and why you're foster care. You can't come in trying to save some child because they will drive you apart. A thousand percent they will drive you apart. And so you need to be in such unity with your husband or with your wife, that when the stuff hits the fan, you're not moving, you're not budging. You're, you're like the 300 wall of those men that stood there and held the shields there. You have to be that locked in arms to, to stand there because you are going to get berated with all kinds of stuff. And I would say the unity there. And then once the child is in your home, you need to know how you're going to discipline as a team and know because you, they, these kids have not had any boundaries whatsoever. So they're coming into your home And you may have a philosophy about how how we're going to stop him from throwing a hammer through the wall. And you may have a philosophy on how to stop him from uh, setting fire to something or being violent or picking up a knife. And who knows? Who knows what that child's gone through? You have to be in such unity. And if you're not locked and loaded with your wife or with your husband, I would say actually don't adopt, much as you may even feel called to it. If you are not, if you two are not number one, like my wife is number one in the context of this conversation. She's numero uno. She means more to me, and some may even have a hard time hearing this, than my kids. Like, she's number one. And until your spouse is number one like that, I would say don't adopt. I don't even have kids. That has to be locked and loaded. Even from the standpoint of, like, playfulness, connection, flirtiness, sexual connection. All of that needs to be dialed in if you want to be the most successful as an adoptive parent. I've sat across from men who've adopted kids, and you can see it in their eyes. They hate the fact that they adopted kids. I'm like, bro. Why did you do it if you were gonna resent the people, the, these, these kids who needed a home? And then two years later, you're resentful because it's hard? Well, well, welcome to the planet, bro. Like you said yes to something difficult. So why don't you either step up to the plate or just crumble in your little hole and sedate so that you don't have to do anything while those children go crazy and leave you and resent you for the rest of your life. My kids may grow up and resent me. My kids may not like the fact that I'm white. My sons may not like the fact that they're adopted or that they were given up. There there could be a host of things, but you better believe I'm fighting for their heart, and it's a daily thing. I literally, before I came to this podcast, I intentionally walked up to my son Rivaldo and put my arms around him while he was doing Fortnite because I felt in my heart, hey, just go give him a hug. Walked over to him, kissed him on the forehead, hey, Zebra. bro, walked to my other kids, and and at the end of the day, those are my sons. They carry the Edwards name now. They did have names before, but they inherited my name just by being my sons. Let's talk about faith and who we are as Christians of inheriting the, the, the name that Jesus has as a son of God, not the son of God, but just the son of our heavenly father. But it's like, those are my kids and my lineage, as you referred to, my family tree on Ancestry.com is going to have a sharp turn into this incredible, beautiful story that when people start to look at that family tree, they're going to see white to black. They're going to see French, European to African, Haitian to this beautiful story. That makes me like proud. I am so proud that my lineage and what's great is my dad is even more proud than I am because he sees his son investing into these boys who are going to eventually become men who are going to eventually have kids and their their kids are gonna have kids and their kids are gonna have kids. And next thing you know, this whole family tree is just redesigned all, all by the grace of God. Like I look at that as a joy and an honor. I stand very proud because I look at my quote unquote white ancestry and I look at what my family will become. I'm so proud that my family tree changes from white to black. I'm so proud that my family changes from European to African in one generation. And
0: yeah. And that's why you're a father of the future. My man, Wes Edwards, way to drop the mic, man. If you would give us a closing message, prayer, affirmation, something that again, the listener in between you and I, questioning and contemplating anything, to to hear an affirmation, to hear something from the Bible, give us something that we can hold on to that will inspire and motivate us to live a higher quality life.
1: So as a dad, every every time we go to school, which you, you know this, I've told you about this, but anytime I drop the kids off, this is what I would say to anybody listening, is to have a mantra for your family. Have a saying, have a, what do we call it? mission statement, whatever you want to call it. But this is this is what we do every time we go to school. Who do you want to pray for today? They'll name some kid that hurt his foot, you know, on the playground. So we'll pray for them or whatever. But I always ask them every single time, where Edwards is, what does it mean? And it's, we're kind, we're encouraging, and we talk to lonely people. And we do that every time. And so when I say, hey, boys, we're Edwardses," what does it mean? We're kind, we're encouraging, and talk to lonely people. You know, and I make them say it like they're in the military, like, hey, this is who we are. Because on the playground, when you don't want to be kind, when you don't want to be encouraging, and you see someone lonely, and you just want to hang out with your friends, I want there to be a moral compass inside of them that that bothers them to see that guy or that little girl being picked on. I want them to be able to walk over to them because they are lonely and they need someone to look at them. So we're Edwards's, we're kind, we're encouraging and we talk to lonely people. So find your statement and invest it into into those those children that God gave you. You guys
0: heard it here. My brother, Wes Edwards, (laughs) truly appreciate you for spending the time for inspiring us to go a little bit deeper into... The context and the vortex of a relationship with God, with Jesus, with your own spirituality, and ultimately where that leads you. If the door is open, you can walk right in. I just wanted to thank you and honor you, man. I appreciate you for your time and for your energy. I appreciate you for your message, and I truly appreciate you for your vulnerability and humility. Hey, I love you, brother. Love you too, brother. Thank you guys for being here today. If you enjoyed this podcast, if you loved it, if you absolutely hated it and you want to argue about the message, It's all good. Just send it out, share it with some people on your social media, text it, email it out so that somebody can listen and find a way to understand about their own journey into not only the spiritual life, but into fatherhood. And so we heard it here from Wes, becoming a father of the future, man, and how you did it. It wasn't easy and it's not easy now, but we honor you and appreciate you, brother.
1: Thanks, man.